0: listening to By The Well, a based podcast of preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people.
1: Hello, I'm Ewan Lo.
0: And I'm Robin Whittaker.
1: And today we are reading Luke chapter 20 verses 27 to 38, Haggai chapter 1 verses 15b through chapter 2 verse 9, and Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. And then a little bit of a jump into the verses 13 through to 17.
0: So we're going to start with the gospel this week, Luke chapter 20, looking mm-hmm. at verse 27 following. Uh, in this part of Luke where uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem.
1: Mm-hmm. He's so, made his so-called triumphal entry.
0: Yeah, that's right. And we've had a series of conversations in this chapter, uh, sort of conflicts and tests of Jesus in dialogue in and around the temple with other Jewish groups, mm-hmm. but here it's the Sadducees. Who are they, Ewan?
1: I mean, the, if, if in very simple terms, they're sort of the Jewish group who you know nominally run the temple. And um, the the first verse, um, verse twenty-seven, tells us some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. So that's a helpful starting mm-hmm. point to know that these are people who don't believe in a physical resurrection of bodies in the afterlife in opposition to, say, the Pharisees, who seem to.
0: Yep. And they seem to also differ from the Pharisees in that the Pharisees were known for their oral interpretation of the law. Mm -hmm. It seems like the Sadducees were maybe a bit more literal and really emphasised a literal interpretation of the written law. So we see here, these are just groups, political groups actually, Mm -hmm. within ancient Judaism, and Mm -hmm. and, um, we should also note that caveat of some, this is, yes. so uh, I guess as preachers we should always be careful not to just group everybody together.
1: Yes, avoid generalising. Yeah, <laughs>
0: so this is some, some of the Sadducees come and they ask this rather bizarre got, gotcha <laughs> question we might say.
1: Yes, I, I characterised it to Robin earlier as, um, you know, I, I do some work with, teenagers, specifically, you know, sort of year 10s, year Eleven, year 12s, and this is the sort of question that they like to ask um, people who seem to be theological experts, don't they? Yes. Could God microwave something so hot he can't eat it himself? <laughs> yes, yes.
0: The impossible question. <laughs> That's right. But there's a, traditional beh- a tradition behind it of leverite marriage. Mm-hmm.
1: Can you speak into that a little?
0: Yeah. So leverite marriage is the idea that if a, a woman marries and her husband dies and she doesn't have children – that if there's another brother in the family, that brother, uh, and we see this reflected in the text, the brother takes her. We get language of taking, mm-hmm. uh, takes her as a wife, mm-hmm. and is expected to, um, basically, you know, give her children. But again, this is all framed. We should notice in terms of the men. Yes, it's to raise up seed, literally, for his brother, mm-hmm. um, and and in its setting. You know, a more generous reading of Leverite marriage, as much as that might sound horrific to the ears of modern women, (laughs) but in its setting, it was a way to actually protect women. Yes. Um, You know, if if you were without a father and your husband dies and you don't have children, Mm. the things that would give you sort of importance and status and some stability in the community are missing. So actually, this would be a way of giving a woman a home. Mm
1: -hmm. It's sort of the um, Ruth story, isn't it? Yeah. In a sense. Mm. Yeah.
0: And I mean, in this ridiculous scenario, there's been seven of these, right? And somehow Mm. no children have ever happened and she's gone through all seven husbands. That's how you
1: know it's a purely hypothetical question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So (laughs) even in the ancient world of bigger families, perhaps, this is a bit ridiculous. But it's describing, I mean, we do need to name and it might be helpful to just let, you know, your your congregations know. Mm -hmm. It's describing something that just happened in patriarchal society where there's an assumption here of women as... Owned really, mm. belonging to the family, mm-hmm. and as not really having autonomy over who they choose to marry. Mm.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the woman in this scenario has zero agency, right? She, she, yeah. She's sort of the object that's passed from person to person. Yeah,
0: she's nameless. Yeah. She's got no, yeah, no and context then the to it. The
1: language in the verse 33 as well. Well, whose wife is she going to be?
0: Yeah, who does she belong wow. to? All right. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And Jesus cut through all of this with his answer, potentially.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it's so interesting because when I read his answer, Jesus is sort of just going, or not, not he, he's not saying, I don't care or it's <laughs> not important, but he's, he is really sort of saying, Why are you asking this ridiculous question? Because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yep. It, it almost doesn't compute to him.
0: No, and he, I mean, there's a very clear statement here of, you know, marriage is part of this age mm. because in this age, We need children and ongoing life, and that's a very biblical, you know, takes us all the way back to be fruitful and multiply. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is just not a concern in the afterlife. Like, why are you focusing on these kind of stupid human things in a sense? (laughs) Um, Although with the caveat, I want to say, um, you know, people will know their congregations, but for some Mm -hmm. people this will – this is a hard text because Mm -hmm. if you've lost a spouse, there might be huge yearning and hope that someday I'll be reconciled with them. Mm. Um, There's a reason in a marriage vows and Christian ceremonies we say until death do us part, right? Because um, probably because of passages like this in the Bible. Um, But so so the teaching here is not to say you're never reconciled with loved ones, Mm. but that relationships will be different. There won't be these sort of patriarchal marriage structures. And I think that could actually be a really... Liberating um, message that the you know, patriarchy oppressed women, it also oppressed slaves. Mm-hmm. That actually, those human structures of power are completely dismantled and resurrected. Life looks different.
1: And, and Jesus sort of reframes it with that angel language, which is really weird, yeah. right? But he's sort of like, well, they're like angels and they're children of God. So, do you think angels get married? Or, you know, that, yeah, that's almost the implication, yeah. right?
0: Yes, angels don't get married and bear children. Like, mm. this is. What, what do you do with that, Ewan? Because it's a rather strange, what does it mean to be like angels?
1: I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you put me on the spot. I don't really know. I, I, I think, I, I suspect, when I read this, I read Jesus as being a little bit frustrated. And I think mm-hmm. it's no no accident that Luke tells us that the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection anyway. And yes. then they ask him a question about the resurrection. Um, yeah. Because, you know, Luke's trying to make the point, well, they're just playing religious silly games here. Yes. And Jesus gives this non-answer that is an answer but isn't an answer. Yeah. Um, And and I think the angel thing is, uh, the the way I read it, is almost him saying, you're not meant to know. Or, or, you know, this is, you're using human language to describe something that is completely inhuman and so it's just not going to work out for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it is good to hold that framing you've just mentioned in in mind because... The fact that Luke reminds us this is a group that don't believe in resurrection does introduce the whole thing that actually the point here is they don't they're not curious about resurrection, no. they're trying to point out how ridiculous it is, mm-hmm. and Jesus undercuts that with saying, "Well, no, your question's ridiculous, yep. actually, resurrection is going to look different and mm. maybe expand your imagination
1: and to- i think I, I do think though there is a very helpful thing to think through here, which is that sometimes as ministers. And people who are, you know, perceived as more learned, yeah. <laughs> shall we say, in the sacred texts, um, you do get ridiculous questions. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's not abnormal, and I think, um, well, I'm not suggesting that you kind of find flippant ways to, <laughs> to dodge no, questions, no. but it is sometimes worth thinking through the context of the people asking the questions, and and thinking through how can you respond in a pastoral way, yep. but sometimes in a way that kind of helps them to realise that their question pales in, into insignificance when broader context is considered, shall we yeah,
0: say. Yeah, yes. I mean, and really I think probably from verse 37 we get to the heart of mm. Jesus' response. Mm-hmm. I mean, he goes to the Moses story and it's a slightly unusual in a sense interpretation of Moses referring to God as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is a typical mosaic and Old Testament way to talk about God. That's about the naming the ancestors and the mm-hmm. patriarchs. Um, but here Jesus turns it into because God is God of the living, not mm. of the dead, mm-hmm. and these to Him are alive. Mm. Which again is rather cryptic. Yes. <laughs> it's a crypt- um, but there's something here, perhaps, about all lives being remembered to God. Perhaps mm. you know. I'd say so. Yeah, that could be a word of comfort. No one is forgotten to God. Fine. Like these are the famous mm-hmm. leaders of Israel, but um, you know everyone is remembered to God in some way. Um, yeah. What What else is there? A hope or how would you perhaps I, I think preach so. this? I mean,
1: I, I love that idea that you know there is this unknowable eschaton. Yep. But. Personally, right, and this is a very basic, <laughs> um, you know, reading of this where I haven't really thought too hard about it, but I wonder if Jesus is, you know, in inciting Moses, in talking about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, in talking about resurrection and not of the dead but of the living and saying, well, everyone's alive,
0: Yeah.
1: I wonder if it is that sort of eschaton where, well, everyone will be alive again. A- a- yep. And it, that, to me that's a remarkable hope for people who have lost loved ones. Um, spouses, so on yeah. and so forth. It's going, well, no one's forgotten. No. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac and Jacob will be walking around
0: <laughs> along yeah. with
1: Moses. Um, yeah. um, who will they be married to? Who knows? Um, but mm. th- the hope that we have is that to all people, uh, sorry, to God, all people are alive and always will be.
0: Yes. Yeah, I really like that. And and also the language we noted earlier, you know, they are children of God. Mm. Um. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I think the point of these sometimes rather strange resurrection stories in the New Testament are not about trying to give us actual facts about because mm. no one knows. I mean. No, well, that's not. Um, but it is allowing us to affirm some core things that, mm-hmm. it, you know, everyone's a child of God, everyone is alive to God. So maybe you know a more expansive sense of resurrection here that mm-hmm. that you know all humanity is raised up and alive yep. to God. Yep. Um. And there's something fundamentally different about that resurrection life with the rather strange allusion to angels. But, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, we might recognize each other and, and you know, be reunited with loved ones, but we're also fundamentally different in some way.
1: Mm. It's an interesting one because there is that honoring, isn't there? That sense of, you know, what has gone before is not entirely wiped away because no. it is Abraham Isaac, Jacob, it is Moses.
0: Yes, yeah, so there's something recognizable still, mm, right? And mm. yeah, we're we're not blank slates or that's um, right. yeah, 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 you're not, not.
1: You don't turn into you know these unknowable angels, perhaps. Yes, you know we are like angels. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So, so I think that that there's a lot of hope there in this idea that yeah, you know you you'll see them again one day. Yep, and they'll be. They may they may be a little bit different, but not completely different. Yeah,
0: they're alive to God. I mean, it makes me think this is probably a complete red herring. But fun fact: um, there are later non biblical Christian texts that talk talk about tours of hell and what you know, hell and mm-hmm. uh, heaven alike, in, in as ways of kind of imagining this stuff. And one of the punishments is being not able to recognize a loved one. Mm. So, um, and, and so I mention that because I think the fact there are names here is actually about. Recognition and knowing, you know, there's still something about whoever we are as core, mm-hmm. unique, unique people. Um, that that in later Christian tradition gets framed as, you know, it, it's a horror to not be recognised. Yeah. Um, and, but that's not what's going on here. Mm. Should we move on to the prophet Haggai? Yes. Okay. So Haggai 1, 15b to 2, 9. Mm-hmm.
1: The second oracle, according to some commentators in yeah. the book. Um, there's a very, very <laughs> specific date being given in that first um, yes. first entry. What do we make of that?
0: <laughs> well, we should mention that, Darius, Darius, I don't know how people say this name. Do you have a way of pronouncing it? I don't know. Okay. I, I mean, we're Australian. Darius. Weird. Yeah, we're Australian. We can pronounce it how we like. Um, this this is a Persian king, mm-hmm. so that the date, the reference is being given um, during the reign of King Darius. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super specific. I've got no idea what the significance of the seventh month and the 21st of the month mean. Mm-hmm. But commentators... Say that this puts it around 520 BCE, mm-hmm. which is significant. I mean, so even if it's written down later, we shouldn't take this too literally. It doesn't mean it's written down at the time, but that's the um, narrative setting. Yes, and that means we're in a part of um, the history of Judah that's 60 to 70 years after the destruction of the temple. Mm-hmm. So, a couple of generations. Mm-hmm. Um, exiles we know under the previous King Cyrus of Persia, he allowed people to start returning to Jerusalem and to Judah. Um, but that makes sense of the kind of questions we get here of, you know, who can who can remember the house's mm. former glory Who can, and the house is a way of referring to the temple. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer would be almost nobody mm. because who's lived that long, yep. who would have gone all the way into exile and come all the way back. Mm-hmm. That'd have to be a very old person to remember what the temple looked like. So we've got a new generation who can't really remember what it looked like and, yeah, that's what's going on.
1: Yeah, what? yeah. And there's almost this sense of um, even though they, no one is left alive, perhaps, who had seen it in its former glory, there's almost this – sense of i don't know is it disappointment or you know mm. um it doesn't live up to expectations this this thing that we're building because based on what we've heard from our yeah grandfathers and grandmothers and ancestors and things like that yeah i don't know yep. I, I will quickly um come back to that idea um that you know almost every commentator i looked at did recommend not to take the dating too literally yep so i think that that, that point you made about the narrative framing is very important it's it's mise on scene it's um Giving you the, yeah, this sort of setting rather than necessarily being a a precise dating. So, you know, don't take that one, don't spend too long on that.
0: Yes, yes, yeah. Um, I mean, the other context here is if you were to read the first chapter of Haggai, uh, which apparently happened in the first year of King Darius. So, again, we've got these narrative kind of settings, but take them lightly. Mm Um, uh, there is a conversation about um, people have started rebuilding homes and things, but it's not going well, mm. right? There's, there's a lack. There's mm-hmm. not enough rain. The crops aren't doing well. Um, there's a lot of effort being put in, but, um, yeah, there seems to be a sense of disappointment about what return mm. and life after exile looks like.
1: I mean, if, if you think about being in exile and being away from your home, you, you do get used to life there, right? You know, yeah. I, I always think about that famous Jeremiah um, oracle about you know, mm. stay here, enjoy yourselves, you know, yeah, marry. Have, have children, yeah. get married, yeah, yep. make you know, a life, yep. prosper, yes, um, seek the prosperity of the city, right? Um, and then you come back to this place that your your parents uh, or grandparents were so excited about, and oh, you know, this is the land of our youth or whatever, and you come back, and you go, oh, it's a bit of nothing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I totally get that, uh, particularly if you've. Um, if you're someone who has had that diaspora experience, I think that's very relatable. Yep. Where you know you've moved on, but or, or the world has moved on and you haven't. Yep. Um, so it's very difficult to come home, such as it were.
0: Yes, and returning home after you've well, both you and I are people who've relocated mm-hmm. countries, um, and I know when I moved to Australia, I spent years and years thinking my home was actually back in South Africa and having this very nostalgic sense. Mm of home, mm-hmm. and then I'd visit and I was like, well, it's not quite the perfect wonderland of my youth that yes. I imagined. Yes. Um, you know, so I think we do this in all sorts of ways. We continue to do it in the church here in Australia where we remember perhaps the boom years of the 50s when the Sunday mm. schools were full. Uh, yes. Um, that, particularly in the Uniting <laughs> Church, that's one of our narratives. If only it could get back like that. Right. Um, <laughs> and we now know historically that was actually an anomaly, like post-Second mm. World War People kind of flocked to church. and that. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, but um, so there is a sense here if you can't go back, you can only go forward. Mm-hmm. But I think the forward looks pretty good, right? Well,
1: and, and you know, I, I mentioned to you just before we started, yeah. I think there's there's a lot of resonance with um, rebuilding. I mean, we're not out of COVID yet, but mm. sort of following lockdowns and things. I, yes. I, I find myself catching myself in moments when, you know, I remember being in lockdown thinking, My goodness, this needs to end. Yes, Um, I'm so done with this. But now I'm thinking, oh, gee, I wish we could just have a (laughs) just be locked in the home for. (laughs) Wouldn't
0: mind being locked at home and not having to do a million things this week. Yeah,
1: that's right. So, so you know, there's that um, wonderful rose-tinted glasses view of things. But yes, there is that keep striding forward. I think the problem that you and I both honed in on um, when we were chatting about this earlier is this very possible slide into a prosperity theology.
0: Yes. Say more about um, what that is.
1: Well, I mean, the, in, in the NRSV, certainly, it's named as prosperity, right? In, in verse 9, it says, mm-hmm. in this place, I will give you prosperity. Um, but historically, um, and certainly within the charismatic church list that I've been part of, um, this idea is that... Uh, if you believe in God, and usually it's keyed into doing specific actions, usually it's related to giving for some okay. strange reason. Yes. <laughs> um almost like churches need money, um, <laughs> or preachers need money. But um you know if you give or or do x, y, Z, God will correspondingly bless you. Mm. Uh, and give you that prosperity that you seek. And, and as Mark Brett always says uh, yep. in his classes, yes, there is a, a theology of prosperity that runs through the Hebrew Bible. There is also a corresponding um, theology of curses. So be careful with that.
0: Yes, exactly. And, and I think we see that here. If you were to read the wider context... I mean, I, I do want to name this as some problematic theology, but it's the mm. working theology at this time, yeah. which is if things aren't going well, it's because God has withheld the rain mm. and God has withheld the crops, That's and right. so God withholds and mm. then God gives. Mm. Um. Yeah. And so very, and you know, behind that is a kind of a very strong sense of God's in control, and this is all God's action. Mm-hmm. You know, God will shake the nations to. Rebuild the temple that you know, um, but we just need to acknowledge that's not necessarily the theological position we start from or or Mm. or or will use, you know, too lightly because of the implications for and the way it's been used for prosperity.
1: Yeah, I mean, verse four in particular is so interesting. Um, you know, take courage and then it says, Work, yes, (laughs) for I am with you. Oh, all right, (laughs) yeah, and that can be, um Quite easily twisted and abused, I think, if if in the hands of yep. a, um, uh, a a mal-intentioned person. Yeah. Um. So I, I think there is, it is worth being careful. Uh, again, you know, that's where the context is very helpful. Yeah. Uh, of going, this is very pragmatic theology, right? Of going, yep. okay, well, you know, we need to motivate everyone to get out and help rebuild the temple, and. Yep. You know, we're we're back in a, a, a strange place that our ancestors came from but we don't know what we're doing. Mm. I mean I think of many of the sermons that would have been preached as we came out of lockdowns. I'm sure many of us um will have either heard or preached ourselves sermons like this saying things like come back to church everyone. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Please keep giving to what we're doing and you know yeah. bring your friends to church and things like that.
0: Yep. Don't give up. I, I do think there's a really there's some really interesting things here to play with for um our sort of context. And one of the things that struck me is one of the criticisms in the text is people returned to the land and they all went and built their individual homes mm. and tried to rebuild their personal lives. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the correction here is one of priorities, which is, you know, earlier in chapter one we have, you know, you've built your own houses but you haven't built my house, says mm. God. Mm-hmm. So that that God comes first and worship comes first mm-hmm. and from that flows everything else. So there's a way to perhaps Play with priorities and what what it means in our own lives. That you know, if we get our priorities right around God, Mm -hmm. um, that perhaps everything else kind of flows from there. I think would be a a kind of a more metaphorical. Mm -hmm. I don't mean in very literal financial senses, Mm -hmm. but um, in a more metaphorical sense. And the other thing that struck me is the temple is also the common gathering place. So there's something about the investment in common life, Mm -hmm. in communal life, Mm -hmm. and we've I think we've seen that out of COVID that Mm -hmm. actually. Parks and gardens and spaces that people could gather in safely became really important. I live near the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne and, I mean, there were some days when we were allowed outdoors but nowhere else. You couldn't see a spare patch of grass Mm -hmm. because everyone was there. Um, But there is something uh, both for our churches but for our wider community about the importance of investing in our common life. Mm. And here the common life is expressed primarily through this image of temple. Mm -hmm. But... um, I, I wonder you know how that might guide our thinking as Christians about what investment in communal life looks like as opposed yeah. to individual life
1: yeah no I love that um I, I think it's very important but but again you know I will caution there is a knife edge to be walked here yes um for for preachers and don't twist your congregation's arms too much no. yes and, <laughs> and
0: perhaps that reflects the context that you've been in 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 some churches where oh, you, you yes. yeah you've seen um yeah the manipulation is don't give everything. To I don't mean it in the sense of financially give everything to common life at a cost no, of your of own course. family. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. The other thing, that back to this prosperity word in verse nine. Mm-hmm. The word there is shalom. Mm. Which is can mean prosperity, but has this sense of peace it, or right. well being. So yeah. actually it's for the peace of mm. um Jerusalem, mm-hmm. not um prosperity in a pure prosperity I think we hear as money. Yeah. Right? Yeah, we, we peace think of has it as finance. Peace has a fuller sense of well being or mm.
1: I mean, maybe maybe when you preach from it, you don't want to use prosperity. Maybe you just say shalom. Yeah. I think it's, it's a better yes. way of I would
0: maybe change the it. translation if you're going to read this out.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Last point I have, you might have something else to add before mm-hmm. we move to 2 Thessalonians, mm-hmm. fun, um, is this house that's imagined, this new temple is, uh, in verse 8 and 9, is going to have more glory than mm. the, the earlier one. So I think there's... A lot of churches feeling like, you know, people haven't come back after COVID, yes. um, life is harder, but there's some kind of promise in this that, you know, it's not about going back and mm. recreating the same thing, but mm. actually God's future might look a bit different, but it could mm. also be more glorious.
1: It, I mean, that's the eschatological thread that runs through all of the yep. readings that we have, which is that this idea that the future's not what you think it is, essentially, yeah. isn't it? And I and think it's probably a lot better. Well, that's right. <laughs> uh, you just you don't be comfortable with what you had, basically, yep. because I think that's that's a lesson we're learning. Um, particularly as you say, you know, coming out of lockdowns, coming having going through COVID and all of that, um, the church, the landscape of the church is shifting, and mm. it is different, but it may be better. Yep. Well, we hope it's better.
0: Did you know you could join our Facebook group, By the Well, for extra content and discussion. So lastly, we're going to have a brief look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1-5, 13-17. Mm-hmm. So the lectionaries left out probably wisely some rather strange verses about the lawless one, and no one really knows who that is. So, mm. yeah, you could probably leave those out as well.
1: That's a fun little trap you can fall into. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, I don't know what you think of authorship, Ewan, Mm -hmm. but I tend to agree with the scholarly tradition that says this is not Paul. Mm. This is a later text. Mm -hmm. So 1 Thessalonians was probably Paul's earliest letter. It's quite apocalyptic. Talks about the coming of Jesus, um, or the second coming of Jesus is is happening very soon. Mm -hmm. Lots of sort of urgency. Mm -hmm. Um. And then this seems to be continuing that tradition but perhaps dealing with the concern, mm. well, one of two concerns, that Jesus hasn't quite come yet, so mm. what's going on? Or uh, um, what we see here in the language of don't be deceived is the idea that this this is the eschaton, this is the end times, this is the parousia, and people, I don't know what that means for how they're behaving, but mm. somehow they think this is it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this author is wanting to say, actually, it's not. There's some stuff that has to happen first
1: it's almost like um you know (laughs) yeah it's coming not like that not like that quick (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) let's just re reset expectations here a little bit
0: yeah exactly slow down and also don't be deceived by maybe some slightly strange teaching
1: i mean that's such a um i mean as scholars of the book of revelation we we come across it a lot but there is a lot of cookie stuff out there and they're as there always has been, there forever will be, I yes. am sure. Yes. I, and and so I think even even if I am skeptical of the authorship, there's a very important purpose to this text, which is to say to people, let's just calm down. <laughs> Take yep. your foot off the accelerator when it comes to, you know, um eschatologically minded theories and um yep. don't worry about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. And just and just wait for God's time.
1: I think verse 15 is is so important here, right, where where it says, just stand firm, hold fast to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. You know, we've been doing Christianity a long time now. I mean, you know, we're we're a couple of centuries, a couple of millennia along from the letter. I think that, that, that line is very helpful.
0: I think it is. And in fact, it could be a really interesting line to put in tension with the Haggai reading Mm. like what's
1: what traditions do you hold yeah what
0: traditions do you hold when are you doing a new thing Mm -hmm. so what's you know and the tradition being held in Haggai is that the temple is absolutely central to life Mm -hmm. um but it's going to look different it's going to look new so Mm -hmm. there's tradition there's also innovation Mm -hmm. I think this is a constant struggle in the church yeah but what does it look like to hold fast and what traditions do we hold on to um because that's what faithfulness looks like for this yeah. author.
1: Yeah. And, and I think 13 and 14 and 15, for that matter, are, are very helpful in that, you know, there, there's that common thread again of this idea of, you know, what does it mean to be the so called children of the Lord, right? You know, drawing on from um, the Luke text, but also coming into this Haggai text of what does it mean to be this community of people? Yeah. Right? Well, what, what's our purpose? And then in 14, we do find that addressing of that purpose, right? you know you you have a clear goal you've got traditions you've got you know ways of worshiping yep why are you turning away from all of that in order to do these other things just because i guess presumably world ending events have happened or maybe they haven't happened and you're really disappointed yeah. about it yeah
0: yes exactly um and i mean these th- those verses 13 14 and 15 of this Could be used liturgically as a kind of benediction, Mm, sending out. Um, you know, there's all the hallmarks of Christian faith there with just giving thanks to Mm -hmm. God, right? So gratitude, giving thanks, um, a reminder of um, those who are the first fruits of salvation. So, you know, that we have the promise of resurrection, but it's based in Jesus' own resurrection and those um, you know, belief, the role of the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. which we also saw in the community in Haggai. Um you know, and proclaiming the good news, witnessing, you know, all all that stuff, they, they, there's some kind of basic central to Christian practices stuff going on. <laughs> Very creedal on almost, is yeah, it? Yeah, it is quite creedal feeling.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, if people ask about, you know, well, what's what's going to be this eschaton, I, I quite like what the author does here. It basically just goes, or he or she basically just says, look, you'll know about it when it happens. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Trust God, be yeah. faithful. It'll be pretty obvious. There'll be big things Don't worry about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, we'll end on that note. Thanks, everyone. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.